Someone asked me if I was going to do the Ten Commandments in the order in which they're given in Exodus chapter 20. I said, well, why would you ask a question like that? And he said, well, I'm trying to figure out which ones I want to skip. So I thought about doing them randomly, but you know there is a significance to the order. The first four commandments deal with our relationship with God in verses 2 to 11. You're to have no other gods. You're not to make an image. You're not to take the name of the Lord in vain. You're to remember the Sabbath day. The last six commands deal with our relationship with man in verses 12 to 17. You're to honor father and mother. You're not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to lie, not to covet. In fact, it's very probable since there were two tablets that one tablet contained the first four commands pertaining to our vertical relationship. The other tablet contained the last six commands dealing with our horizontal relationships. That distinction is borne out in the New Testament. Jesus asked a certain lawyer in Luke chapter 10, what is written in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' response was, you have answered correctly. You see, that sums up the Ten Commandments. It deals with my relationship Godward and manward. Now, we tend to think of the Ten Commandments as just a list of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. We tend to think that it's just about as cold and hard as the stones that it was written on. But when we look a little closer, we find that God incorporated into this list the motivation for our obedience. And that motivation is love. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God says, before we start, let me remind you of something. When you were in misery and slavery in Egypt, I'm the one who heard your cries. I am the Lord who loved you and delivered you. And then slide down to verse 6 at the end. It says, to those who love me and keep my commandments. There's our response. Because of what God has done for us, we should want to reciprocate. God does not want us to keep the commandments because we have to. He wants us to keep them because we want to. Love is always the motive behind our obedience. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. And Paul put it this way in Galatians 5, 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love. How does love fulfill the commandments? Well, if I really love God... I will have no other gods. I will not make graven images. I will not take his name in vain. If I really love my neighbor, I won't steal from him. I won't lie to him. I won't kill him. I won't covet what he has. That's why Augustine could say, love God and do as you please. Because if I love God, I will do what he pleases. Now this morning we're going to look at the second commandment. It's found in verses 4 to 6. It says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. The second commandment is that you are not to make or worship or serve an idol or an image. Now, most people think that they don't have a problem with this commandment. 
because they think of an idol worshiper as someone lying prostrate before a carved image. But we've got plenty of idols in America in 1999. I saw a picture of one on the sports page yesterday. It showed Willie Green, wide receiver for the Denver Broncos, was renting a Lamborghini Diablo for $1,900 a day while he's at the Super Bowl. That is an expensive image. Some people park their idols in their garage. Some people dock their idols at the marina. Some people put their idols in their safe deposit box. The shrine in a lot of homes is that little box that you plug in called a TV. And every night we turn it on and we worship our idols. Not so much objects as images. Images of success. Images of wealth. Images of status. Images of sensuality. America is given over to idolatry. You say, well, I'm a little confused on the difference between the first commandment and the second commandment. Because the first commandment is you shall have no other gods. The second commandment is you shall not make an image and worship it. What's the difference between the two? Well, let me help you with that. The distinction would be this. The first commandment deals with the who of worship. The second commandment deals with the how of worship. Jesus put it this way in John 4, 24. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. You see, there is no material thing that can designate God. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 25, God asks this question, To whom will you liken me? See, we can say one man is like another. We can say one chair is like another. We can say one pulpit is like another. But there is only one God. And you cannot compare him to anything. That's why a lot of people have trouble with the Trinity. One God, three persons. People say, I just can't understand that. Well, you know, I wouldn't have confidence in a God that I could understand. A lot of people make illustrations to describe what the Trinity is. But there is no illustration that works because there is nothing like God. Someone has said, try to explain the Trinity and you'll lose your mind. Deny it and you'll lose your soul. God says, to whom will you liken me? You see, that's the issue of the second commandment. And it's illustrated by the children of Israel because this is the very first commandment that they broke. They broke it while Moses was still on the mountain getting the commandment. Remember he came down and they had gone to Aaron and said, make us a God. And so they brought their gold jewelry and Aaron made a golden calf. That's always puzzled me. How could they experience the plagues in Egypt? How could they walk through the Red Sea on dry ground? How could they follow the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire? How could they get manna from heaven every day and then turn their back on God? We know we're given some insights in Exodus chapter 32. And I want you to look there for just a moment. Two things stand out to me in this passage. Number one, their hearts were already far from God. Look at verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, 
the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Moses went up on the mountain. Exodus 24, 18 says he was up there for 40 days and the people began to panic. Why? Because they had become too dependent upon Moses. And when they could no longer see Moses anymore, they said, make us a God who will go before us. We need something tangible to follow. You see, this idolatry didn't happen instantaneously. It had already happened in their hearts. They were already leaning too heavily upon a man. I think we saw some of that this week in St. Louis. I heard teary-eyed people saying, I got to see him. I breathed the same air he breathed. I felt his holy presence. Israel didn't jump into idolatry. In effect, Moses was their first idol. And the golden calf was their second idol. But let me show you another thing here. And that is that they rationalized their actions. Incredibly, verse 5 says that after Aaron built the golden calf, he made an altar and he told the people, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. You see, they were not looking at this as idolatry. They were saying in their own minds, rationalizing, this golden calf is a representation of God. This golden calf is actually helping us worship. You see, that's the issue in the second commandment. God does not want to have any image to assist our worship. A person who really knows God and really has a relationship with Him doesn't need an image or a representation to help Him pray. Now, now that's not to say that a picture or a painting of Jesus is wrong. It's most likely inaccurate but it's not necessarily wrong in and of itself. What is wrong is the belief that you need a picture or a sculpture or something else to help you worship. That's wrong. That's idolatry. Let me add a footnote here. This commandment that says we're not to make a graven image is not against religious art. The Bible confirms religious art. The tabernacle, you remember, had the mercy seat and it had two gold cherubim over the top. It had a lampstand with golden branches and almond blossoms and bulbs and flowers. When Solomon built the temple, there were images of pomegranates and palm trees and lilies and oxen and lions. This commandment is not against art. It's against idolatry. John Calvin the great reformer wrote, Sculpture and painting are gifts of God. If art is your master, then you are an idolater. If art is your servant, it becomes ministry. God is the author of beauty, but he hates idolatry. Now, why do people make images? Well, let me suggest several reasons. Number one, it's an attempt to limit God's location. See, if I can put God in a statue, or if I can put God in a place like a church, then I can get to Him real easy. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 4, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and they lost. And so they came back to their camp and they said, we've got a problem. God is not with us. So they went to Shiloh and they got the Ark of the Covenant. That thing that was representing the presence of God. They said, you know, God hangs around with the Ark, so if we take the Ark into battle, God will have to come. So they took the Ark, they went into battle again, and they fled in defeat. They lost 30,000 soldiers. They lost the high priest and his two sons. They lost the ark. And they lost 20 years. Because that's how long it took until Samuel gathered them together. And he said to them, If you want to have God in your midst, then put away the foreign gods and return to Him with all your hearts and serve Him alone. You see, they were relearning an important lesson. God can't be put in a convenient location. He dwells with those who are humble and contrite in heart. But that's what people continually try to do. Limit God's location so that they can get to Him easily and so that they can get away from Him easily. People say, well, I don't want God around me all the time. I mean, I'd like to leave Him at church. I'd like to leave him on that bronze pedestal. It's kind of nice when his representative comes to America every 10 to 12 years in his Pope mobile. You know, that's about right. Second reason people make images. It's an attempt to reduce God's power. People like to whittle him down to size. And then he's more convenient. He's more manageable. You hear people say all the time, well, my idea of God is... And when I hear people say that, I think, who made you the authority on God? See, when you do that, you are shaping your image of God. And why do people do that? Because it's a whole lot easier to change my image of God than it is to change me. A lot of people change their theology because they don't want to change their lifestyle. And in America today, we have a lot of meology instead of theology. We say, I don't think God really cares about adultery. I don't think God's really that concerned about immorality. As long as two people love each other, that's all God cares about. What are we doing? We're making God like us. And God calls that idolatry. We have reversed Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man in our image. What do we say? Let us make God in our image. A little girl was drawing a picture in Sunday school and the teacher said, what are you drawing? She said, God. The teacher said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And she said, well, they will when I'm done. <laughs> A lot of adults are doing that. We want God in our lives, but we want Him in small, pre-measured doses. I will make God in my image so that He will justify my lifestyle. Third reason people make images. It's an attempt to control God. A lot of people want a God they can manipulate. 
little boy wanted a bicycle, so he told his mother, and his mother said he should pray about it. So he decided he would write a letter to Jesus. So he sat down in his room, got out a piece of paper, wrote, Dear Jesus, I need a new bicycle, and I've been perfect for the last year. Well, he knew that wasn't right, so he crumpled it up and threw it away. He started over again. Dear Jesus, I've been a good boy most of the time. Well, he knew that wasn't right, so he crumpled it up and threw that away. So he said, Dear Jesus, I want to be good all the time. Well, he knew that wasn't true, so he crumpled it up and threw it away. So he goes in the living room and he gets a statue of Mary and he wraps it up in a towel and throws it under his bed. And he writes, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again... A lot of adults do that in our adult way. We try to manipulate God. You shall not make or worship or serve an image. Whether it's a molten image in your living room or a fabricated image in your heart. Now why is God so upset about idols and images? Well, look at Exodus chapter 20 again. Verse 5, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Suppose a woman walks into the room and her husband is in there and he's got another woman in his arms. And he sees her out of the corner of his eyes and he says, Now wait a minute, honey, don't jump to conclusions. I want to explain what's going on here. This woman is so beautiful, she reminded me of you. And I was just embracing her so I could think of you. How many of you would buy that? Well, see, God doesn't buy it either. When we say, I was worshiping this because it reminded me of you. God is a jealous God. Now, jealousy is sometimes an ugly word. It's like the second cousin of envy. But there is also a righteous jealousy. And when God is jealous, it's always right. One athlete has no right to be jealous of another athlete because he doesn't have a monopoly on athletics. One singer doesn't have a right to be jealous of another singer because she doesn't have a monopoly on singing. But let me tell you something. God has a monopoly on being God. As someone has said, His throne is not a duplex. He wants all your worship and He deserves all your worship and He will not share it with anyone or anything. See, this is no light issue with God. In fact, you could make the argument that idolatry is the greatest sin of all because it breaks the greatest commandment of all. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Idolatry is actually the renunciation of our highest purpose in life, which is to glorify God. And that's why God spends the first two commandments on this subject. See, man is incurably religious. We were made to worship. And when we stop worshiping God, we don't stop worshiping. 
We just worship something else. Why is idolatry so bad? Let me give you five reasons. Number one, idols will disappoint you. Jeremiah 10, 14 says, Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless. They promise more than they can deliver. On TV it says, Wear our label and you'll be popular. Buy our product and you'll be successful. Drink our beer and it doesn't get any better than this. Try our toothpaste and you'll have sex appeal. They promise more than they can deliver. Idols will disappoint you. Secondly, idols will dominate you. 1 Corinthians 12, 2 says, You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to dumb idols. Idols may start out letting you control them, but they will end up controlling you. When you love something more than God, it will dominate you. And that's why one of the most common words in the vocabulary of our day is the word addicted. People are addicted to work, addicted to sex, addicted to sports, addicted to gambling, addicted to alcohol, addicted to drugs. We have a society of addicts because idols will dominate you. Third, Idols will deform you. Psalm 115.4 says, Their idols are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. Listen, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. God says in Jeremiah 2.5, They went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. You will become like what you worship. That's a principle. If you worship money, you will become more materialistic. If you worship pornography, you will become more perverted. If you worship yourself, you will become more selfish. But listen, if you worship Christ, you will become more like Christ. You become like whatever you value most. You will become like whatever has first place in your life. And that's why idols can deform you. First, you mold the idol, and then the idol molds you. Fourth thing, idols will destroy you. You know, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Now, that's the only time Jesus ever said that to anybody. And the reason he said it to that man is because he knew that his idol was his bank account. And the Bible says that that young man became very sad for he was extremely rich. His idol not only disappointed him and dominated him and deformed him, but it destroyed him because it kept him from Jesus. In Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, 
They finally get the Holy Grail and, and, and this girl has it in her hand and there's an earthquake and she drops it and she falls through the crevice. And Indiana Jones has her by the hand. And he says, give me your other hand and I'll pull you out. And she reaches for the wrong thing. And she loses her life. That's the way idolatry is. It gets you reaching for things that lead to your destruction. Let me give you a fifth and final reason. Idols will duplicate you. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, look at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Idolatry doesn't just have a negative impact on you. It also has a negative impact on your children and your children's children. Now, he's not talking here about the guilt of God. He's not talking about guilt. He's talking about the result. You reap or you sow the sin, your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren can reap that sin. We see that in the natural realm. We see somebody who's addicted to crack cocaine and a baby is born with certain impediments. The same thing holds true in the spiritual realm. Let me illustrate that for you. Flip in your Bible over to 2 Chronicles 26. Second Chronicles 26. Uzziah is the king of Judah. And this passage tells us he was a godly king for most of his reign. But I want you to look at the end of verse 15. It says, Hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. And when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He became so proud that he decided he would worship God his way. He said, I know that only the priests are allowed into the temple this way. I know that only the priests can burn incense. But I am so important that I'm going to do it anyway. And the passage says that 80 priests came in and told him to stop. And it just made him angry and more determined. And so he did it anyway. And verse 19 says, while the censer was in his hand, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And if you slide down to verse 21, it says, And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Notice the end of that verse. And Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Jotham became king in his place. Now what kind of king was Jotham? Well, look at chapter 27 and verse 1. It says, Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, verse 2, and he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, he did not enter the temple of the Lord, but the people continued acting corruptly. Like his father before him, he did what is right, but it says he never went to the temple. You can imagine that. He said, you know, dad went up to the temple and he got leprosy. I'm not going there. So you got a father who had false religion. You got a son who 
neglected religion altogether. And then there's grandson. Chapter 27 and verse 9 introduces Ahaz. What kind of king was he? Chapter 28 and verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He did not do right in the sight of the Lord. Notice verse 2. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. But he, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He also made molten images for the Baals. Here's the grandson. What's he doing? He's bowing down and worshiping heathen gods. In fact, slide over to verse 24. It says, Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces, and he closed the doors of the house of the Lord. What did he do? He went up to the temple and nailed the door shut so nobody could worship. I wonder which one of our grandchildren are going to close this place down. Well, there's a great-grandson. Look in chapter 28 in verse 3. It says, Moreover, he, Ahaz, burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he burned his sons in the fire. What happened to the great-grandchildren? They were offered as babies sacrifices to heathen gods. So you got a father who got proud and committed false worship. You've got a son who neglected worship. You've got a grandson who hated God and nailed shut the house of God. And you've got grandchildren who were sacrificed to false gods. The iniquity is visited on the third and fourth generation. You say, well, you know, you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Well, let me tell you something. Sin always hurts somebody else. There is no such thing as sinning solo. If it doesn't have an immediate impact on your life, it will have an impact on your children. But you know, there's a good side to this. I want you to come back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. The end of verse 5 says, The iniquity will be on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But verse 6 says, But showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Idolatry can impact the third and fourth generations, but the mercy of God can impact thousands. You can break the chain. In fact, if you go back, and you can take the time later, if you go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 28, Verse 27, it tells us that there was one great-grandchild that didn't get sacrificed to the heathen gods. And he became king in the place of his father. His name was Hezekiah. And it says in chapter 29, the first few verses, that he came back to God. And he went and he opened the doors of the house of God and repaired them. He broke the chain of idolatry in his family. Remember what Paul said about Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5? For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Isn't that good? It was first in Grandma Lois, and then it was in Mother Eunice, and then it was in Timothy. A woman came to her pastor and asked, When should I begin to train my child in the things of the Lord? Should I start at six years old? And he said, no, that's too late. 
She said, at three years old, no, that's too late. At one year, no, that's too late. At six months, no, that's too late. Then when should I start? And he said, you should start with the grandparents. Because we hand it down. You will impact your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. Do you want your children's children to love God? Then you need to teach them to worship. Listen to me. The very best thing that you can do for your children is not a college education. It's not a legacy in the bank. It's not vitamin-enriched food. The very best thing that you can do for your children is to teach them how to worship. And there's only one way to teach them that, and that's by example. We're not to make images. We're not to worship images. We're not to serve images images. Because whatever we come up with falls short of who God is. It is less than God. It is an insult to God. It is false worship. But you know, God seems to understand this. Because He wanted us to know Him and relate to Him so much that He came to earth in human form. And there's a great verse in Colossians 1.15. It says of Jesus, He is the image of of the invisible God. You see, I can look at Jesus Christ and say, oh, that's what God is like. Remember Philip asked him a question one day, show us the Father. And Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. We can get to know the real image of God by getting to know Jesus Christ. That is true worship. Let's close in prayer. Before we do, I'm going to ask Tempa to come forward so that she'll get an opportunity to give her a hug today. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this commandment that reminds us that You're a jealous God and that You don't want us making images or uh, whether physically or even in our minds that we come up with ourselves, but You want us to worship You in spirit and in truth according to Your Word, according to who Jesus is. Father, we pray that that might be true in our lives, not only for our, sake, for our own sake, but for the sake of our children and our children's children, that they may know and love You. We pray in Jesus' name.